This year has reminded us of the importance of saving for the unexpected. And as a bank, our job is to make that a little easier for everyone. That's why at Huntington, we're so proud to introduce Money Scout. It analyzes your checking account to find money that's not being used and moves it to your savings automatically. It's that simple. So you can always be saving, even now. Learn more and enroll at Huntington.com slash Money Scout. Huntington, welcome. Money Scout is subject to eligibility, terms and conditions, and other account agreements. Member FDIC. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. Hey, Brent. How's it going? I'm good, Charlotte. Thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, well, it's good to hear your voice, if not see your face, not yet anyway, um, but, uh, you know, nice nice to chat with you. Um, so today we are going to be talking about the intersection between two core issues impacting women and also people who can become pregnant, uh, and that's abortion bans and economic injustice. So at Generation Progress, where Brent and I work, uh, we apply a reproductive justice framework which is a term coined by a group of black women in 1994 to all of the issues that we work on, understanding that the freedom to decide if, when, and how to have children is inextricably linked to the issues like climate change, criminal justice reform, and immigration that we all work on. So recently our team has been working on a campaign to illustrate the connections between the need for access to abortion to the need to end the student debt crisis. And both of these issues disproportionately impact women. Over the course of the past year, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have experienced an economic recession that has hit women and people of color the hardest. So adding that on top of the student debt crisis, which also disproportionately impacts women and people of color, and then layering in an uptick in attempts to restrict or deny access to abortion, it is clear that reproductive justice and economic freedom are in jeopardy for women and people who can become pregnant. So to discuss this intersection between reproductive freedom and economic stability, we are joined by two expert guests. We have with us today Ravina Duftery, the abortion coverage campaign co-director at All Above All. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ravina. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, and then we also have Robin Blyweis, a research associate focused on women's economic security at the Center for American Progress. Thanks again. Uh, thanks for joining us, Robin. Happy to be here. Thanks, Charlotte. Yeah, thank you again. Yeah, thanks to both of you for joining us. So just to kick us off here, uh, Ravina, can you tell us a little bit about the mission of All Above All, where you work, um, and how you came to this type of work? 
Sure. Um, and Charlotte, your intro and framing was great. I think a great kicking off um, to talk a little bit more about our campaign. So our campaign, the All Above All campaign, works to create a world where abortion care is affordable, available, and supported for everyone who needs it. So, um, you know, you talked a little bit about reproductive justice as kind of our guiding values and framework. And we take one piece of that, understanding that it's, you know, one little section of somebody's entire sort of reproductive life um, and really home in on uh, what kinds of resources they need, what kinds of community supports, policy supports that they need to actually make um, that, that decision completely accessible um, and attainable. And so, you know, we really call that abortion justice, um, really looking at the at where abortion is intersecting with immigrant justice, with racial justice and with economic justice. And so we launched in 2013 as the women of color led effort that really convened to restore and sustain public insurance coverage of abortion. Um, so you may have paid attention during the ACA debates that, um, you know, during the Obama era, we did see some losses in the area of insurance coverage of abortion. And this is, of course, building on the decades-long legacy of the Hyde Amendment, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, um, which denies Medicaid coverage of abortion. And so that is um, really was kind of the original abortion restriction in the U.S. Um, it followed right on the heels of the Roe v. Wade decision. And so almost as soon as they decided that abortion would be legal in all 50 states, they took away abortion by restricting Medicaid coverage for those people who were low income, who were predominantly women of color. And so in 2013, when we saw some of those losses during the ACA debate, a group of leaders within the reproductive justice movement came together to create a long-term strategy to finally end the Hyde Amendment once and for all. And that's kind of how um, All Above All was born. And so since then, you know, we've really taken a, a more expansive and holistic approach. And so while um, ending the Hyde Amendment remains a core priority for all above all and for um, many of, you know, our partner organizations that we work with, um, we've also started to expand to some other areas within the context of abortion that we know, um, you know, are really restricted and um, could open, you know, some really new and exciting avenues for people to be able to um, you know, really live into their autonomy and get the abortion that they are looking for. Um, so I've been at the campaign since its inception, and um, I've kind of, you know, come to this through a variety of different ways, but I really kind of cut my teeth on abortion in um, working in the South. So I worked and lived in Mississippi and Arkansas um, and used to do some advocacy around abortion in Mississippi in those states. And obviously it's a, um, you know, I think we've seen even, just this year that it's, um, you know, really, really uh, challenging context to be working on this issue. But um, that's really kind of what galvanized my um, my passion for this issue um, and particularly my passion for the intersections between abortion and somebody's kind of economic future and all of, um, you know, really their ability to sort of live their dreams. Um, and so when this group of leaders was putting together um, this strategy for the long term, and at the time, you know, it felt really, really almost out of reach. You know, this was a deeply entrenched policy. The Hyde Amendment had been around for 40 years. Um, and so I was really excited by the challenge of it. And we've made some really exciting strides. And, you know, we're also really excited um, to see what happens with, with the new administration, certainly um, within the area of abortion coverage, but also um, some of the other issues that we work on, including economic justice, medication abortion, and immigrant justice. 
Great. Thank you so much, Ravina. That was um, great context and great background. And I definitely learned something about all above all myself. So uh, thank you to all of the great work that you do. And also, I appreciate um, your compliment on the introduction that I gave. But I have to say, my understanding of reproductive justice uh, came from our colleague, Brentson, my colleague at Generation Progress, Edwith Theogene, um, who uh, has a, a history of working on reproductive justice um, and helped introduce that issue um, as a much stronger issue for generation progress. So cannot claim um, to have come to that understanding on my own and all credit to um, Brendan Mai's colleague Edwith for that. Um, Robin, I'm going to hop over to you for a second here um, and same or similar question. Uh, so you work at uh, the Center for American Progress on the women's team. Can you tell us a little bit about your current work as well? Absolutely, yeah. So the CAP Women's Team, uh, we call it the Women's Initiative, and we focus on developing and promoting progressive policies and affirmative solutions that ensure that all women and people can uh, participate fully in our economy and live healthy and productive lives. And so I feel that this conversation is a perfect time to have it, and it's an evergreen conversation. Hopefully it can live on the internet for a long time. And uh, my work in particular focuses on women's economic security, but we deal a lot with the intersection of women's economic security with a whole host of other issues, health in particular. Uh, and we really try to center women of color in all of the work that we do. Our team is led and made up of a majority of women of color, uh, but we also make sure that we are promoting policies and we are looking into the different aspects of our work that um, highlights the disproportionate impacts of different things on women of color in particular. So I focus a lot on equal pay, workplace sexual harassment, gender-based violence, and women's employment more broadly. Uh, but I'm excited to have this conversation at the intersection of economic security and health. Great. Thank you so much, Robin. Um, also, very important work that y'all are doing. Um, so glad to have you on the show as well. So I think we probably have just about a minute here left in this section. Um, Ravina, uh, I know this will, you'll be able to only touch on this in a minute before we hop over to a commercial break. Um, at a high level, how does access to abortion impact people who can become pregnant? And if there's something where you're like, let's just, I, I can I can barely dig into that, um, whatever uh, that is in like a, a sentence or to there. Um, I know we'll have time to come back to this also after the commercial break. So do not worry. I know that's a big question. No worries. I'll give you the, um, I'll give you the 60 second version. <laughs> so I think for many people, not for everyone, but you know, deciding to have a child is one of the most important decisions they probably make in their life, whether that's because of their, you know, personal ambitions or dreams for their life or their family circumstances or their health or their pocketbook. Right. And so you know, we really feel that people should be able to make that decision in their full autonomy and should be fully supported in the process. And that's just certainly not the um, the kind of environment that we see when it comes to abortion policy and abortion access. And so currently the situation, and I know we'll come back to this, but, um, you know, is that in many states, people are facing a web of financial, logistical and policy barriers. And so, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this with Robin, but um, for different types of workers have different access to health care, time off, all of these things that kind of are required for an abortion. We've got geographic access. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, Ravina. Um, I am going to cut in. We're going to hop no to commercial worries. break and I'll let you pick that up right after we come back. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. Hi, Brent. I promise I'll let you talk this time. So. <laughs> I mean, you're doing such a great job, Charlotte. Just keep going. 
<laughs> uh, well, just before this commercial break, um, I had to cut off one of our awesome guests right in the middle of her answer on this. Um, today, we're discussing the intersection between reproductive freedom and economic stability. And we have two expert guests with us. Uh, Ravina Duftery, I would like to come back to you to ask you about, uh, uh, Ravina works at all above all, I'm sorry. I'd like to come back and ask you to pick up on this question. Um, and then we also have joined, we're also joined by Robin Blyweiss um, from the Center for American Progress. So Ravina, I asked you uh, at a high level, how does access to abortion impact people who can become pregnant? And I gave you like 30 seconds to answer that, even though that's definitely like a four minute answer. So hop right in there. <laughs> no worries. Um, so I, I think actually over the break, I had a moment to reflect. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think it's, if we're talking about this, you know, particularly within the context of economic justice um, and abortion access, I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, so there's, I guess, a couple of things that I would say. So the first is really to talk about money. Um, and, you know, I talked about the Hyde Amendment that was passed in 1976, and it restricts Medicaid coverage of abortion, and include, including a, a bunch of other federal programs, um, including IHS, Medicare, Peace Corps, um, federal employees insurance. Um, and then that, that has really trickled into private insurance, which traditionally private insurance has um, has covered abortion. Um, and until recently, where there's been, you know, quite a bit of stigma um, that has cut down the number of programs um, and insurance programs that have covered um, abortion within their private plans as well. And so what we're seeing is people really having to pay out of pocket, um, particularly low income people. And we're talking about a catastrophic or what really qualifies as a catastrophic medical expense. It's unexpected. It's, also, it's oftentimes the amount of someone's rent. And so it's very common for us to hear stories about people who are choosing between trying to come up with the money to fund their abortion, um, pay for their abortion or paying for their heating bill or paying for their rent. Um, or, you know, buying clothes um, and, sh you know, shoes and food um, for families. So it really does um, create a, an urgent financial burden that has real life consequences for people. And that's really just talking about the Hyde Amendment and policies that target somebody's financial access to abortion. We also see across the states, um, I'm sure many of your listeners have um, heard about all of the different types of restrictions um, that, you know, different states have been enacting over the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years, including waiting periods, including, um, you know, biased counseling, um, and then other types of laws that are, you know, intended to shut down clinics and require people to drive farther to access care or take off more time from work. All of these things, in addition to creating type, different types of logistical barriers, are also almost always associated with the cost. And so when we're talking about folks who are already working to make ends meet, um, they oftentimes, you know, lead to an inability to access the procedure um, or, you know, a delay that, you know, is really not desired on the part of the person who really wants to be able to, you know, actuate their decision. Um, and so, you know, these really do kind of fall hardest on folks that are working to make ends meet. Um, and when it comes down to it, you know, if you ask me about the high level impact or, you know, what that kind of adds up to across the country, we know that one in four poor women who seek an abortion are forced to carry to term because of restrictions like the Hyde Amendment and other restrictions that, that make it unaffordable for them. 
Um, and so, you know, again, we really want to center a person's autonomy. And we think that these types of policies um, are really robbing somebody of their ability to make the decision that they've you know, decided is best for them. Thanks, Ravina. It's um, really helpful to hear the context in terms of how, in thinking about this, in terms of an unexpected and, and potentially catastrophic sort of medical emergency within that realm and how the um, expenses or the, the financial burden then can make it, uh, in fact, a medical procedure, a necessary medical procedure inaccessible for some people. And I, and I want to sort of um, take that thread and, and, and Robin, turn to you for a second and, and just, if you can, uh, we know that this is also sort of compounding on existing economic burdens uh, that, that women face, things like the pay gap, student, uh, disproportionate levels of student debt, et cetera. And so if you could just talk a bit about how those economic burdens impact women and people who can become pregnant and, and have they worsened since the pandemic? Absolutely. And thanks for that question. I want to throw it back briefly to what Ravina said, just to kind of underscore, you know, when we talk about reproductive justice, being economically secure is a huge part of that concept. So people need access to resources and money being a key resource in our capitalist system to be able to make autonomous choices and plan out our lives. So having access to money is so essential to accessing the care that we need. So things like you mentioned, the pay gap, student loan debt, and just broader burdens on economic security for women and pregnant people, these can create extreme barriers and the pandemic has certainly exacerbated them to an almost uncomprehensible degree. So the pay gap we know is persistent and pervasive. It has been for decades now and it's the gap has really only narrowed a couple of cents in the past decade. We know the wage gap is much bigger for women of color. A lot of the same women who might have uh, bigger difficulties in accessing abortion care. And the wage gap in terms of the pandemic, we don't quite have the data on that yet. There are some preliminary data from our friends at IWPR, the Institute for Women's Policy Research, that shows that it appears that the wage gap might have actually gotten smaller uh, during last year, 2020. But what that really points to is that we think a lot of the lowest earners who are disproportionately women of color actually left the workforce entirely. So those women aren't counted and that sort of artificially narrows that wage gap and gives sort of an incomplete picture. So there's still more research that needs to be done in that area, but we know that pay discrimination, just like other crises, have not stopped during the pandemic. And so we really need to remain vigilant there. Also, as you mentioned, student loan debt, we know that women hold two thirds of all outstanding US student loan debt. It's over $900 billion, and that Black women, more than any other group, finish undergrad with more debt. Um, so these are all things that make it harder and make it so that women have less money to be able to access the care that they need, specifically abortion care. And just broader burdens on economic security, things like earning minimum wage or just a few dollars above it. For folks who do choose to have children, lack of work family policies, and just broader workplace protections against discrimination that need to be strengthened or, or, or are non-existent. These are all things that sort of compound the situation that women are living in, and we really need to ensure that we're talking about economic security and how that might impact health because they're all connected. Got it. They are all connected. And so as we think about um, really, the, and I know it's preliminary data, but just reflecting on the fact that we know uh, that, that it appears that the pay gap may have shrunk a little bit, really pointing to the fact that it, it means uh, sort of lower wage um, earners, which we know disproportionately women of color, um, being pushed out 
of the job market altogether are being pushed out and, and having higher rates of unemployment potentially, and that resulting in an overall increase in the average um, income or potentially shrinking the wage gap overall is a really sort of just incredibly insightful way of, of, of talking about what this is, especially when we think about how abortion restrictions are are negatively impacting that same population of people. And so I want to continue this conversation when we come back and talking about the intersections of abortion access and economic justice and reproductive justice when we come right back here on the uh, Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. And welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Hey, Charlotte. Thanks for coming back with us. Oh, you oh know. wait, you're the co-host. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being here. Get out of here. <laughs> so Charlotte and I are joined today by two incredible guests talking with us about the uh, about reproductive justice and the intersections of um, economic justice and abortion access. Um, and so we're joined by Ravina Daftery, excuse me, sorry, Ravina, uh, who's the abortion coverage campaign co-director at All Above All, and Robin Blyweiss, who's a research associate at Center for American Progress's Women's Initiative. So thanks both for coming back here with us and for sharing your knowledge um, and expertise. Uh, we were talking a bit before break um, about the... Um, economic uh, sort of burdens that, that women face and how um, some of those were exacerbated during uh, the economic crisis sort of induced by the, by the COVID pandemic. And I want to just kick it over to you, Ravina, to see if you have anything to add. Robin really laid out a, a bunch of interesting information and data there, but would love to turn to you to see if you have anything to add about the sort of economic impacts here uh, and its disproportionate impact on women. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just was so intrigued to learn kind of what Robin was sharing about what she's learned um, about the economy during this time. Um, I think for me, one thing that I um, just, you know, want to make sure that that I say um, to your audience is that when it comes to abortion access, things were obviously um, very turned upside down within the pandemic. I can talk a little bit more about that. But, um, you know, I uh, this has been an ongoing crisis around abortion access, abortion restrictions within the U.S. for the last 10 to 15 years. And so many of these things were sort of exacerbated by the pandemic for a variety of reasons. Um, and and these are systems that were breaking down much before the pandemic. Um, you know, we, we were, look, you know, abortion providers and abortion funders across the country were looking to support people who made it had to travel out of state because their um, provider was potentially shut down by the state under, um, you know, under their um, shutdown orders and things like that. In those cases, they were really targeted because they were abortion providers. Abortion um, really is urgent and essential care, and abortion providers were complying with um, all of the stay-at-home orders um, that were being, um, you know, put out for different healthcare providers. And yet, we really saw that conservative governors would use any tactic necessary, or any tactic 
available to them really to shut down abortion clinics. And so while they really weren't paying much attention to how to really keep their population safe um, and were not really using public health to dictate a lot of the policies that we were they were putting out, um, for some reason they felt that shutting down abortion clinics during this time was absolutely pivotal. <laughs> and so many of these types of, you know, much of this infrastructure that we have, um, that our movement has built to help people negotiate um, these barriers to abortion access were strained, but the problems were not new. Um, and so I think, you know, I just want to say that I think we are, um, you know, one day when we emerge from this pandemic, we will still have um, an incredibly, you know, weak system that is really not able to um, serve people in the way that, that, you know, they really need to be served and care for people in the way that they need to be cared for. Um, there are many providers who are out there um, every day just, you know, providing care and really trying to, um, against all odds, in my opinion, give people the care that they need. Um, and, you know, they it's really they are really challenged by the legislative environment, by the restrictions and by the culture in general. Thanks, Ravina. Yeah, I think I mean. It's it's sort of this this in this issue area as in most issue areas, um, it feels like uh, there's a little bit of you know the the pandemic ex exacerbated uh, problems that just already were huge and already uh, some major gaps for um, people who have financial barriers and access barriers um, and you know it seems like abortion access and um, healthcare access is just uh, no exception whatsoever. So, yeah. And I think, sorry, the only other thing I would say is you, you know, I'm sure many people actually found themselves in the situation at the beginning of the pandemic where we're facing, you know, either large unemployment or, um, you know, just a lot of uncertainty in terms of employment, in terms of insurance coverage, in terms of Medicaid coverage, in terms of childcare, in terms of schooling. It's a moment where people are really taking their ability to, raise a family, grow their family very seriously in terms of their sustainability as a human being. And so we really should be providing every option possible to them. Um, and within this environment, it, you know, we, we shouldn't be taking away their ability to actually make a decision that's going to have lifelong consequences for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Robin, is there anything you want to add to this here? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Charlotte. I think I would just emphasize for your audience in particular, you know, that the pandemic has limited opportunities for workers, particularly young workers and recent graduates. I want to make sure they're at the center of this conversation. So our insecure job market currently is an issue for all young people, but particularly low income young people, and that things like limited employment opportunities, you know, stagnant wages, a low, you know, federal minimum wage that hasn't budged in a decade, the persistent gender wage gap, all of these things that are so much worse for low-income people and people of color, these are all implicated in and to various extents exacerbated by our current pandemic. And again, as I had said up top and that Ravina has beautifully illustrated as well, all of these things play into our ability to access healthcare, including abortion care. So they just have to be talked about together. And the pandemic has undoubtedly made things more difficult, but people were already struggling before this moment. Absolutely. I, I mean, I just I think uh, that's just a common theme that um, Brent and um, Edwith, Brent's and my colleague, who also sometimes co-host the show with us, and I have just 
uh, found and discussed with so many guests over the course of the year, it is that the, the pandemic continues to lay bare things that were already bad and just sort of exacerbate existing inequalities. So in in thinking about that, um, and it's clear that what we need um, are some fixes or some changes, like a proactive agenda here on this. So what are some ways, um, and you know, I think maybe let's start Robin with you um, and then Ravina, if you have anything to add here, what are some ways that abortion access can be expanded? Absolutely. I love that you said proactive because the Center for American Progress's Women's Initiative actually has a new product out from March that's called our Proactive Abortion Agenda that lays out some uh, recommendations for federal and state policymakers on how we can work to expand abortion access for all. We also have an action alert. Um, folks should check it out. But beyond that, I think, you know, to the econ side of things, because of how they're related, there are broader bills that new that need to be passed that are essential to securing economic security. So things like the Paycheck Fairness Act to secure equal pay for working women, access to work family policies, particularly for people who decide to start families, and access to quality, affordable health care that includes comprehensive reproductive health care, including abortion care, contraception, and maternal health without interference or barriers. That's really, really key. Um, you know, just again, we don't live our life in silos, so we should talk about these things together. Um, and uh, there are other really great specific abortion-related policies that I know Ravina can speak to, so I want to throw it over to her. But again, it just there are so many things that we need. It's not just one. We really need a robust, comprehensive effort. Yeah, Ravina, what do you think? Yeah, um, well, I'm sure some of these are in the Center for American Progress agenda, um, <laughs> which is really <laughs> exciting. Um, Maybe you know that we've been talking. Um, so, we, <laughs> so um, I think there's a couple of things that I put on folks' radar. So, I, you know, I think with the world of abortion access, like all we hear is gloom and doom all the time. Like so-and-so state is banning this and that and the other, and which is certainly happening. I mean, 20, 2021 has revealed itself to be an extremely um, depressing year in terms of abortion restrictions. You would think that people would have, you know, legislatures and states would have other things to be doing. But... Um, we've seen a record number of abortion restrictions, including, I think, eight total bans on abortion. Um, so, but there are many, many things that we can be doing to actually improve the landscape of care. So one is um, certainly um, ending the Hyde Amendment and restoring um, abortion coverage in Medicaid um, and in private insurance and public insurance. And so we have a federal bill called the EACH Act. Um, which does that. And, you know, we're really excited to have the support of, um, you know, of uh, many, many members of Congress and in the Senate um, this year. And so we're excited to go into the appropriations process as well. Um, and I think, you know, we're really excited that President Biden did temporarily end the restrictions on medication abortion care. Um, and we will, um, you know, be hoping, looking forward to um, ending those once and for all. Um, we think that's a really important option for um, low-income people and for really all people to be able to have some more flexibility around um, abortion care provision. Um, we're also really um, excited that the Biden administration enacted a $15 um, and an hour minimum wage for federal contractors, but we're really looking forward to them doing that for all workers, and we really want to see that happen. Um, and then, you know, there's at the state level, you know, I could talk for um, 50 years about what we could be doing at the state level, but, you know, the Hyde Amendment is a, is with, a federal with, and state program. With that, since we, there's much to cover on the state level, I think we've got 30 seconds until our commercial break. So after this, when we come back, uh, we'll talk about what we can do to make, uh, make this more accessible to everybody.
If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. And we are joined um, by our two guests, Ravina Deftry and Robin Blyweiss. So thanks both for coming back with us. And we were talking before the break a bit about this um, what can be happening at the local, state, and federal level to um, in fact, expand access to abortion. Uh, and so just wanted to um, kick it kick it back over to Ravina if you want to share a little bit more about what a proactive um, agenda looks like here uh, at the state and local level. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think at the federal level, I talked about um, ending the Hyde Amendment and, you know, you know, President Biden releasing a budget without any coverage bans and the Hyde Amendment, as well as some of the um, in-person requirements for medication abortion. Um, at the state level, you know, I think one thing that um, people sometimes misunderstand is that um, th- is that Medicaid is a federal and state partnership. And so while the federal government does ban abortion coverage within the Hyde Amendment, states can individually decide that they would like to cover abortion for um, residents of their state. And um, in fact, 16 states do. And so really any state um, and people in any state can be advocating that they lift their coverage bans in their states. Um, That's obviously not going to be possible in every single place right now because of the political makeup, but everybody has to start somewhere. And I'll just say, speaking from experience, we also started very much in the red. Um, But we've had a lot of success and, you know, the conversation and the movement has to start somewhere. In addition to that, I think, you know, there's a range of different proactive policies in addition to lifting those coverage bans that some of our partners in the states are working on. Um, you know, in a few places, we've worked on Reproductive Health Equity Acts, and so those would really secure insurance coverage in both private and public insurance across the spectrum of care. So when we talk about reproductive justice, we're really ensuring that people are adequately covered and have economic access um, to care regardless of what they're deciding to do. So whether that's expanding care to contraception, to abortion, to pregnancy care, postpartum care, Um, really making sure that people are taken care of at any stage um, or any decision point in their pregnancy. Um, And then at the local level, we've really worked in a couple of cities, um, including New York City and Austin, on um, funding abortion care at the local level through municipal funds. So whether that was directly funding abortion care or in some cases like Austin because of their preemption laws, um, funding practical support to abortion care. So I think that there's lots of creative ways um, that we can start this conversation, start building the kind of muscle that we need um, to make this, to spread this movement across the country. Thanks, Ravina. I think you did a great job of laying out a lot of the policy asks that we can do. And it's like, um, as as you said here, there, there are things that we need to do. I mean, it would be great to have some of this enacted at a federal level, level and have federal legislation, but there are also things people can be doing at all levels. People um, can be contacting um, state level legislators as well to be uh, asking for differences and changes. Um, so to Robin, can you talk a little bit more about like 
the nuts and bolts of that? Like what, sh who should people specifically be targeting? Um, and are there, is there like a specific piece of legislation that people should be asking for? Absolutely. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head that people should be targeting the lawmakers at all levels. It really, it really does start from the bottom up. And so it's essential to reach out to all of them. And, you know, a lot of the federal things that we've laid out, I'll just reiterate the EACH Act once again. I think something that we maybe haven't called out yet is the Momnibus, which is the Black Maternal Health Caucus's comprehensive bill uh, that'll address pretty much every dimension of the maternal health crisis and kind of reduce those racial disparities. Um, you know, broader access to affordable quality health care that includes reproductive health care without interference. Um, you know, all of these things are essential and can be advocated for at many different levels, given the way that Medicaid is tied, you know, between as a partnership between the states and, and the federal government. Um, I think just broadly, though, what's what's key is just holding our policymakers accountable. You know, these are people who are always eager to get our votes. But when it comes time for them to vote, sometimes our issues fall through the cracks. So we need to make sure that not only are we showing up to vote, but that we're holding them accountable to, you know, do the work and prioritize these issues to advance real policy solutions. And again, just continuing to talk about these issues as related. You know, we experience these things as completely related. And so we want to make sure that our policies uh, reflect that. And whether it's bills that kind of make that uh, concrete tie, or if it's separate economic security bills, and then health bills, and we want to push all of those at once. These are just all things that we need to put the pressure on uh, to make sure that these issues are front and center at the conversation. Awesome. Totally agree. And then I was thinking, you know, we we started this conversation also talking about um, you know, we've been talking about economic security um, and justice writ large. But we also started uh, this conversation talking a little bit about student debt specifically. And I think that's because it's been in the news so much. And it seems like there's such a good chance for something um, to happen here with student debt cancellation and some of the college affordability legislation that's been proposed. There are two different um, pieces of legislation on the Hill. Um, um, that would uh, provide four years of free college. And you definitely need, you know, both sides of those things to um, make sure that there's a much more equitable, um, much more equitable access to um, post-secondary education um, here in the U.S. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm layering on top of all these things. These, as, as you said um, just now, Robin, these things are connected. People are not experiencing each of these issue areas in a silo. Um, in a pandemic where access to affordable education and healthcare have completely changed, um, I think young people need policies that allow us, um, particularly the most vulnerable uh, people of, from the millennial and Gen Z generations, uh, to reach our full potential. You know, we're entering the workforce um, with the, as the most educated generation in history, um, but that education is coming with just debilitating student loan debt. Uh, and we've seen the impact that student loan debt can have on holding um, people back from other major life milestones like uh, buying a house or, you know, starting a family. Um, and student loan debt is currently at 1.6 trillion with a T um, with black student loan borrowers uh, paying the highest monthly payments uh, of that. And that, I mean, I just think uh, that it's it's sort of not a coincidence that the people who um, are disproportionately impacted by um, access to um, reproductive health care are also often the people um, who have um, the hardest time accessing uh, higher education. Um, and there's a, you know such a big disparity um, with our higher education um, access and post-secondary education access in this country. Um, 
So I just I'm layering with student debt stuff on top here because, you know, it's just all, all of these things together. And also just there is so much momentum right now. And so I think I'm a little bit, uh, you know, I'm frustrated, but I'm also jazzed. <laughs> I'm seeing the cancel student debt movement. I'm seeing the free college movement um, and, you know, how we need both of those things here together. Um, and I'm I'm psyched about that. So, um yeah, I, I guess uh, as we're getting ready to wrap up here, um, for people who are listening um, and want to get more involved in this issue, um, what can they do to get started? Um, and I know you both have talked about the, the pieces of legislation and the policy asks we can um, they can ask for here. So if they're also looking for more resources, um, Robin, let's start with you. Uh, where can they be going to find more resources? Um, more about you, your work, um, this this issue area writ large. Absolutely. They can check out our work at the Center for American Progress's Women's Initiative. We have a pretty robust portfolio of um, abortion resources, maternal health resources, general health care, and economic security. So if folks want to learn more, that's a really great place. And also check us out on Twitter at Cap Women. Um, that's also where you can find my work. I do not have a personal Twitter, but uh, my work is promoted there and, and I take over the account from time to time. Uh, so that's a really great educational resource for folks. And, and I'm sure Ravina has some really great um, action resources as well. Yeah, great. Awesome. Same question, Ravina. Uh, where can folks find more about you um, and your work at All Above All? Um, and then in addition, if folks want additional resources and ways to get more context uh, information to ask for these policy changes and ask for this legislation. Yeah, it's as though you read my mind. Um, we actually do have a big ask um, coming up, which is that we really want President Biden to release a presidential budget that has no abortion coverage restrictions. Um, and so that means that there's no Hyde Amendment. Um, we think that's a really important first step and a first step, you know, to really indicate his leadership and stick to his campaign promises. And so I just want to go back to what Robin was saying about accountability. This is a position that he took, and this is our moment to actually hold his feet to the fire to make sure that he actually does it. Um, and so we would love for you to go to allaboveall.org. Um, when you go onto the um, website, you'll see a little space to sign up for our email list, and we'll have um, you know petitions going out. Um, they're already circulating, um, really trying to get his attention and make sure that he really sets the tone for um, the appropriations processes, which, were, which is where they really decide about the Medicaid budget and the Hyde Amendment. Um, so, and you can also follow us on social. Our handle is at all above all on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and lots of good information, um, comes that way too. Great. Thank you so much. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much today to today's guests. Uh, we had Ravina Duftry uh, and Robin Blyweiss. Um, and also thanks again to our producer, Mark Grimaldi, our communications manager, Emily Leach, and to all of our listeners. Make sure to check us out on social media, Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Gen Progress. And we will talk to you again next week on the remote takeover, takeover of the Generation Progress Global Market Show. May is Maytag month at Lowe's. Save on our exclusive selection of Maytag appliances with collections found only at Lowe's. Get up to $200 via prepaid card by mail on your purchase of select Maytag major appliances, a brand you know and trust. Shop in store or at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Manufacturer's rebate. Prepaid card amount varies based on purchase. Offer valid through 6-2. Exclusions, terms, and restrictions apply. U.S. only. Do-it-yourself doesn't have to mean all by yourself. 
Help is as close as homedepot.com slash workshops. Now with free DIY live stream workshops, live hands-on courses from real expert associates, learn grilling tips, spring lawn prep, how to stain a deck, and more. All from the best seat in the house, yours. To register, go to homedepot.com slash workshops. DIY live stream workshops. Only from the Home Depot. How doers get more done.